take our Bibles this morning because I am going to be in selected passages today. And uh, let's turn to some of the ones that I want to look at uh, as I go through the Scripture. And one of them is uh, Psalms chapter 37, verse 28. That's where we'll start, and I'm going to be ending up in the Gospel of John chapter 10. But I'm looking, I've been looking at these great doctrines of the faith. And the last uh, week when I was looking at um, the irresistible grace or effectual calling, I was in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 30 where the Bible tells us, for these whom he predestined he also called, and these whom he called he also justified, and these whom he justified he also glorified. That is the full scope of the plan of God from the beginning to the end, that what God starts, he will definitely finish. So this morning I'm looking at the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints. Both of them are included when we think about this particular truth. But let me have a word of prayer before I go any further. Father, we humbly come before your throne today, we open up the very word of God. Teach us, Lord, what we need to know, the very truths of the doctrines of grace that have been so foundational to the church, so strengthening to those who believe them. I pray, Lord, that we would learn more of them and think often of them, so you would make us good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for these truths that you have not withheld from us, but you showed us in the Word of God what you have done, and we praise you for that. And we thank you, Lord, that our salvation is secure in our great God. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. I heard a commentator ask a well-respected theologian, what is the primary thing the world needs today? The theologian said, the primary thing that the world needs today more than anything else is to learn about God. Well, the commentator asked another question. What is the primary thing the church needs today? And the theologian said, the primary thing that the church needs today more than anything else is to learn about God. That's true. See, that's our big problem is we don't know enough about God. When we do, it changes things in our life. So we have been examining the grandest, most joy-producing doctrines in all of Scripture. The great B.B. Warfield once said that Calvinism, by which he simply meant that system of theology that joyfully embraces the rich, comforting, God-exalting, self-debasing, Christ-honoring, biblical message of the sovereignty of God in salvation and all things could be summed up in three words. God saves sinners. See, that's the important truth that we have and that comes out through these doctrines. And so the five points of Calvinism have been summarized already as one that you know, tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Or, as I've been mentioning, another acrostic is rupep, and that would be radical corruption, unconditional election, particular redemption, effectual calling, and today, the preservation of the saints. Now, perseverance defined is that perseverance is a doctrine which says that those who are the elect, because they have been the object of God's eternal degree of election, and because they have been the object of Christ's atonement, shall continue in the way of salvation as the same power of God that saved them will also keep 
and sanctify them until their final salvation. This word, the perseverance of the saints, actually there are several scriptures that mentioned it, mentions this word, and one of them is Revelation, where it says, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Now this phrase gives the strong impression that God's, save, that God's saving purpose cannot be frustrated. That none of Christ's true sheep will ever be lost. Though the elect may from time fall into sin, and even radical sins such as Peter's denial of Christ, God restores them to fellowship with himself and assures their eternal salvation. So this salvation involves the work of the Trinity. All those who have been chosen by God the Father have been redeemed by Christ the Son and given faith by the Holy Spirit are eternally saved. They are kept in faith by the power of the Almighty God and thus persevere to the end. So, they persevere in faith because He preserves them. That's what I want to look at this morning. If uh, you remember, maybe from past science classes, the law of inertia. The law teaches that objects at rest tend to stay at rest until acted upon by an outside force. And objects that are in motion tend to stay in motion until acted upon by an outside force. In by way of illustration, before conversion, we were in a sense at rest, dead in sin. And the gospel came, the power of God unto salvation, and quickened our dead soul and set us in motion on a narrow path of eternal salvation. In the natural world, God not only creates the universe, but he also upholds it. If he should withdraw his power for a second, the universe would go crashing back into non-existence. God creates and sustains the universe. The same is true in the spiritual realm. God not only recreated us in salvation, he keeps us alive spiritually at every single moment. We have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. If He should withdraw His Holy Spirit from us for even a single moment, we too would instantly crash back into our natural depraved natures. See, God holds on to us. And we're not able to keep ourselves, but God is able to keep us. So I would like to consider this last point in two messages, this one and another one, on the doctrines of grace in a very practical way. The first one is to consider perseverance, looking at it at three levels. The first level I want to look at it as the profession level, when someone makes a profession of faith. The second level is the heart level. Once a person makes a profession of faith, what goes on in the heart? And then the third level would be the living level. Okay, how then do we live once God has done this miraculous work in our heart? All right, so probably the first two I'll look at today and the last one I'll pick up next week. But I want to look at the first one, and that's the profession level. Now, at the profession level, things may seem the same. The responses of faith may look the same for those who really genuinely believe and those who profess falsely. We all know someone at one time was genuinely and deeply convicted of sin who earnestly sought the relief from the burden of their conscience who eventually even believed the gospel, put their faith 
in Christ and found rest for their souls. Their profession seemed bright. They came to church. They even came to prayer. They lifted up their voices along with the saints in worship. And yet they're no longer amongst us. Uh, They didn't just go to another place of worship. They faded out. They went back to their old way of life. And they have no desire today for the things of God anymore. Everybody knows someone like that. However, the doctrine of perseverance does not rule out, when considering that, the backsliding of a believer. The doctrine says that a true believer will not remain in a backslidden condition endlessly. If he does, if a person does, he had better put a big question mark beside his profession of faith. Many of God's saints have backslidden, but not one of them have ever apostatized. And the reason for that is the doctrine of perseverance. Some people, for example, some people fell into sin, but not from the grace of genuine salvation. We have several examples in Scripture. We have King David, whose fall into sin was not total because God's Spirit remained with him. In Psalm 51, it tells us that. And then we see Peter in the New Testament, whose faith did not fail when Jesus prayed that his faith would not fail. But there are also proof in the New Testament of people like we read about this morning in Sunday school, Alexander and Hymenaeus and Demas, never really gave any evidence that they had any grace at all. They left the faith because they began to hear and teach false doctrine and There, really, they never had more than Judas had. It seems in Scripture there's no evidence of it. So, the sinful falls of the saints are not recorded in Scripture for our imitation. They are recorded there for our warning to take heed to ourselves, to look at ourselves always, to watch against falling into sin and to resist temptation. All that is very important for all of us. And we have places in Scripture like the parable of the sower, where the person heard, they responded with joy, and then they fell away. And then we have, in 2 Corinthians, the one who responds with a worldly sorrow and not with godly repentance. And then we have in Hebrews chapter 6, dimensions of enlightenment where the Hebrews had throughout history revelation given to them about what was coming and who what was that that was Christ who was the fulfillment of all the types and shadows in the Old Testament and came right to Christ and they didn't believe in him they didn't bear fruit and of course, they fell away. So somebody can be enlightened spiritually and scripturally and still not be a believer and still not come all the way and believe in Christ. And then Jesus, remember, warned, gave a warning in Matthew 7 about those who prophesied in his name and those who cast out demons in his name and those who did miracles in his name. And Jesus said to them, what? I never knew you. Depart from me. So see, these are things in Scripture that are frightening to grab our mind around, but nonetheless, it is not the initial profession, but it is the underpinning truth, which is the continuing preservation of God for His saints. Now, here are some Old Testament and New Testament passages that I'd like you to turn to real quick before we get to the Gospel of John. And the one I ask you to turn to first was Psalm 37 and verse number 30, uh, 28. Psalm 37, verse 28. It's, now, this is just to give you a sense that this doctrine is talked about when referring to God's people all over the place. 
It's not just in one place. But it says in that passage, it says, He will not allow your foot to slip. Excuse me. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake His godly ones. They are preserved forever. But the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. So in that passage of Scripture, God loves justice and He loves His godly ones. And what does He do? He preserves them how long? For 10 minutes? For 10 years? It says forever. That the preservation of God is definitely in the Word of God. And then move to the last part of Psalms in Psalm 121. In verse number 3, and it says this, Psalm 121, verse 3, it says, He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Aren't you glad that God doesn't have to sleep? That God takes care of us all the time. He doesn't have to take a nap. He doesn't have to sleep. He doesn't have to rest from his labors. He doesn't have to do that. And see, that's all part of God keeping us. He has the power to do that. And then look over to Psalm 121 and verse 7 and 8. Right down from that passage. It says, the Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. And then it says, the Lord will guard your going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forever. In other words, the Lord is involved. He is definitely involved in our lives. Now, that brings us to many passages in the New Testament, which I'd like you to turn there now. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3 to 5. Now, while you're turning there, I want to mention some other passages It says in Romans 16, it says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. See, God is able to establish and strengthen believers so they will not vacillate and depart from evangelical truth. And then the passage that I'm asking you to turn to in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 23. Did I say 5 or 3? I said three. Well, we're going to go to three, too. But that's 2 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. Look at what this passage of Scripture says. It says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved completely without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he will be he will bring you bring it to pass. So see the Lord is definitely involved in the preservation the complete and total preservation of his people. And then well instead of the Thessalonians passage let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 4 and 5 and I just want to show you a few other verses then I'm going to get to John chapter Ten, Here in, in 1 Peter, again, I want you to notice what it says. Look at the Word of God and see it for yourself. It says in verse number 4 of 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefied and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So here God again protecting us by his own power. And then one last passage in Jude chapter 1. There's two verses in there in this very very short epistle. It says in verse number 1 of Jude it says Jude a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And then in verse number 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great, glory, with great joy. So in that passage of Scripture, God is keeping us for a very particular reason. 
So number one, that we will not stumble and that he will make us stand in his presence in glory. That we'll make it there. Not on our own strength, not our own, on our own power, but on the strength of God. There's the preservation there. So, in thinking about all that, what does all that mean? It means that what God begins, He finishes. What God starts, He completes. Matter of fact, Philippians, Paul told the Philippians, I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfected until the day of Christ Jesus. That the Christian's confidence resides not in himself, but in God. God can guarantee a believer's preservation. And it also means that God supplies security for the saints. So the question would come up, how can you be sure that you'll never perish. Well, it's because God provides security for us. Now, with saying that, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. The Gospel of John, chapter 10. And in this chapter, there are three points of security that really is quite comforting to those who are believers. And we really need to know these and think about them because they are so important to us persevering in the faith. So in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, I want you to notice, first of all, three points of security. And here's the first point of security. It's the nature and the gift that he gives to us, his sheep. And that Security is eternal security. Notice what it says in verse number 28. He says, and I give eternal life to them. In verse number 28. Now that, of course, is what I am getting at. This means the life is forever. We can't say at this point, once saved, always saved, because what God actually does for us, in fact, if the Arminian theory was true and a born-again believer could lose his faith and become lost, then the last thing he could say is that the believer has eternal life. Well, in 1 John chapter 5 and verse number 13, remember that passage of Scripture we should all be familiar with, these things I've written unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may, what? No, you have eternal life. So see, The first point of security is that we have eternal security. It's not temporary security. It's eternal security. And God wanted us to know that. That he gives us the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. And that is the first thing. The second point of security found in the Gospel of John, verse 28, is that the nature of the promise that he gives them And that means it's a guaranteed security. It says there in verse number 28, he says, and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. There is the guaranteed security. God is saying to us, listen, you will never perish in this passage right here, that the saints are God's property and they are sealed and will be guarded right down to the day of redemption and the Holy Spirit is, is the guarantee that they will not be lost. When I was in Ephesians, the two passages that mention that is, it says that we're sealed in Him by the Holy Spirit of promise. In Ephesians chapter 1 and then in Ephesians chapter 4, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That sealing is something that God does upon us and for us and gives us the promise that we are kept by him. There's no one who could break that seal. There's no one who could do that if God sealed us. No one can break it. And then there is a third point of security in the Gospel of John, verse 28 through 30, and that is this, that the nature, we see here, the nature of the united commitment of the Godhead. In verse number 28, notice what it says at the end, 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then in verse number 29, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I call this double security. And why is that? If you notice the text, it says no one will snatch them out of my hand. Who's that? That's Christ, right? And then it says, and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. So it's like the, the Lord Jesus Christ, or the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ come together and protect the sheep. No one can get at us. Satan can't even get at us. He can't snatch our soul anymore. He can tempt us. He can try us. He can lay stumbling blocks in front of us, but he cannot take us from Christ. We have double security. We had guaranteed security, and we have eternal security. Now, if God has his hand on you, who can possibly snatch you from it? See, God who created and sustains the universe will keep you. That's why Paul said to the Romans, who will, be able, who will be able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? Who will be able to do it? What will be able to do it? What event will be able to do it? What circumstance will be able to do it? And of course his conclusion is it's not tribulation that can do it or distress that can do it or persecution that can do it or famine that can do it or nakedness or peril or sword that can do it. He says I'm convinced that neither death can do it nor angels can do it nor principalities can do it nor things present nor things can to come can do it, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing. In other words, he made a list to convince us that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So we have double security. See, I have to walk around, and you have to walk around knowing this, that when I die, and before I die, I am in Christ and secure in Christ. And if Jesus rose again and defeated death, then that death is, death is defeated in my life too. And I have a guarantee of eternal life, not because of me. I cannot keep myself, but God can keep me. And he promises he will keep you. He will keep you. If you are, have come to Christ, he will keep you. That's the bottom line. See, I need to know that. I need to know that I'm secure. You need to know that you're, you're secure. You know why? Because we are riddled in our day with insecurity. Everybody's insecure today. Everybody has to be on some kind of drug today. We, we live in a, a drug culture, whether it's illegal or legal. Somebody's on some kind of drug. Why? Because they're trying to escape something. They, they're too insecure about life. They don't know what's going on. They don't know where they're going. They don't know where they stand. But I tell you what, the greatest truth to know that because of what Christ has done, that when you go through life, he's with you. And when you're in death, he's with you. And when you're done with death, you're in his presence. You're in glory. And why is that? Because he's kept you all along the way. Amen? I tell you what, that has kept me. Because many times I felt weak and vulnerable and temptation felt too strong. And I just felt like you, sometimes you feel like giving up in the flesh, don't you? You're throwing up your hands and laying on the bed or go crawl in a corner somewhere. But you know what? I'm reminded back to this truth, this doctrine, this starting out with the election of God's people, now ending with God keeping us. He saved, he provided salvation, and now he keeps us. In salvation. So that leads me to the heart level. The useful nature of this doctrine is found in the consistent perseverance of the saints. Why will a true believer continue in the faith and not turn back to a life of habitual sin? Why will that not happen? Well, the reason why is because God has worked in you. In fact, Paul told the Philippian church, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you. Both to will and to work his good pleasure. 
See, God is doing that in you. So see, it's not just that we're eternally secure and we're going to make it to the end. But while we're walking to the end, God is causing us to bear fruit. And he's starting right in your heart. He's changing every facet of of your being and transforming your mind to think like a biblical Christian. To think like a saint. In fact, how does he start doing that? The saint will be identified really by four distinctive facts. And these really reflect the nature of regeneration, the nature of what it means to be born again, which is, of course, the new birth. The new birth is a miracle of grace. It's the affecting of a radical change within our hearts. It's, it's the renewing of the, of the faculties of our soul, giving an entirely different bent to our inclinations about everything in life and in this world. God changes us. Who are those who persevere? It is the saints and none other. Now, how can we recognize these saints? How can we recognize God's sheep? Well, again, you're still there in the Gospel of John, right? Well, look at verse number 26. I want to backtrack a little bit. Look at verse number 26 of John chapter 10. There's four distinctives about the sheep. And here's the first one. Notice in verse number 26. It says, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Now, if I reverse that, I'm saying this, that Christ's sheep have saving faith. Those who do not believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ do not have saving faith. But Christ's sheep have saving faith. They are commanded by God to repent and believe. But remember, when they repent and believe, it is not God who repents and believes for them. The Holy Spirit enables the heart to believe and to come to Christ for salvation and eternal life. And when that person comes to Christ, by the Holy Spirit of God's sweet drawing, like I said last time, that sinner comes to Christ with the full consent without realizing a secret influence has ever been exercised over their heart. In other words, they come willingly. They come with a desire to put away their sin and turn from their unbelief and believe in Christ. So that means that saving faith forsakes all human means of salvation. I'm giving up all my good works. There's no such thing as good works that can measure what Christ did on the cross. I can't profit from salvation by birth or salvation by religious affiliation or salvation by keeping God's law. I can't profit in any other in any way. And even the great apostle Paul himself hoped in salvation in all things. But when he met Christ, he counted all of them as rubbish, having he said that they have no new spiritual value at all for saving the soul or making one right with God. He threw it on the garbage pile. And he says they mean nothing. They can't do anything before God. And so Paul had to make an exchange in all the soft stuff he was trusting to only trust in Christ. See, we have to make an exchange. Coming to Christ in salvation and having saving faith, meaning that we must exchange something. For it says in Matthew, for what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? This means, first, that saving faith comes to anyone who turns their back on any confidence in the flesh for salvation because no amount of personal effort or good works or religious deeds can ever earn a place in heaven with God. None of those things could profit. But I tell you what, a characteristic, a distinctive of, of, of a 
Christ's sheep is that they have saving faith. And another thing about saving faith is that they turn from their sin. We're helpless sinners in need of a Savior. So God must judge sin, and the only way we could be saved from that judgment is a personal trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, who rose from the dead, and and who paid the penalty for lost sinners. And of course, one of the last things is that saving faith involves a commitment to Christ. Biblical faith demands and produces really costly and radical changes in someone's life. In essence, its essence is really a is supreme commitment to Christ. And so this leads me to the next distinctive in our passage. And if you look, notice in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 27, the second distinctive of God's sheep becomes very evident. And look what it says in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. That's pretty simple, isn't it? We have a particular relationship once we become believers to the word of God. Jesus even said in, back in the beginning of John chapter 10 and verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. See, to hear Christ's voice means more than being familiar with his words as they're recorded in Scripture. It means more than believing that they are his words. The Lord is requiring more than simply listening respectfully and believing what he says. His sheep submit to his words unreservedly. They submit to his authority. His sheep respond promptly to his orders. His sheep obey him. And that becomes very key to someone who has been confronted with the word of God, been confronted with their eternal destiny, that without Christ, without believing in him, without forsaking all means of salvation, without turning from sin, without... and a commitment to follow Christ the rest of your days, there's little hope that a person really is genuinely a believer. When I was teaching through the wisdom book of Proverbs, there's a very interesting passage of Scripture in Proverbs that deals with how a son, a child, listens to his father. Listen, don't turn there, but listen to this passage of Scripture. This is in Proverbs chapter 8. It says, Now therefore, O sons, plural, listen to me. For blessed are they who keep my ways. Heed instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the man who who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts. So here is somebody who, when they're listening, they are actually posturing themselves to make sure they don't miss a word. So they can actually implement what is being taught. So they could know they're blessed by when they keep the word of the Father. So they can know that they're blessed when they actually listen to the Father and that daily they are waiting to hear more of what the Father has to teach them. That's a wise person. A wise person hears the voice of Christ and wants to listen. They don't just go on their scurry off on their own way without listening. No, they want to listen. So, not only does Christ's sheep have saving faith, secondly, Christ's sheep hear his voice, but thirdly, if you notice in verse 27 of John chapter 10, there's another thing is, and this is maybe one of the most important ones, is that Christ's sheep are known by him. Notice what it says, and I know them, 
isn't it something, it's something for you to know Christ, but it's a whole other thing for Christ to know you. To know, have an intimate relationship with you, to actually know who you are. Jesus says, when it comes to my sheep, I know them. I know them, that Christians have a unique relationship to him. And then again, in, in John 10, 15, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I laid down my life for the sheep. So a union and a communion with him becomes deeper and deeper and deeper, and then we know that God loves us, and we love him. See, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then in Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for the good. For who? For those who love God. For those who have an intimate relationship with him. For those in whom God knows himself. See, does God know you? Does God know you? If he does, then this is what he's going to see. You listen to him. You're known by him. And, of course, you have saving faith. See, those are the ones Christ knows. There's certain distinctives that he sees in his sheep. He knows the difference between a goat and a sheep. He knows those who are his and those who are not. He knows those who sneak in, in the, over the back wall and those who come in through the only gate there is, the shepherd's gate. There's only one opening to a sheepfold, and that's where the shepherd stands. And if you're a sheep, you don't go over the side walls or the back wall. You come past the shepherd. Why? Because you know the shepherd, and the shepherd knows you, and the shepherd has his best intentions for you. See, God knows who we are. He knows who his children are. He knows who his sheep are. And then there is a fourth distinction that he knows about you, and it's found in verse 27 also. In John chapter 10, and it says this. It says, and they follow me. They follow me. As soon as a sheep hears the voice of their true shepherd, they follow. In other words, they obey him. They are not bent on following the flesh. They're not bent on following other voices they're not bent on being solicited by Satan. They are not listening to the ways of the world anymore. Here, these sheep are listening to Christ, and they're following the voice. They're following the voice. So, you know, all the voices vying for our attention. Which voice are you listening to? Christ's sheep listens to his voice. You hear people say all the time that the Christian life is hard. The Christian life is not hard. The Christian life is impossible <laughs> without the power of God. See, we couldn't even live, we could not even follow Christ or hear his voice or be saved unless it was for his power. You understand that, right? See, because we we are new creatures in Christ. We desire to follow the example that Jesus left for us. In fact, when Peter was talking to the people who were scattered and, and being persecuted, he said to them this, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you in Leaving an, leaving an example for you to what? To follow in his steps. And then he says this, who committed no sin, nor was, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And then he said this, here's the practical application. And he himself 
bore our sin in his body on the cross, here is the result. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we are healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. See, that's what it is when we are true sheep and we have committed our souls to the true shepherd. He is the guardian of our souls, not ourselves. So only those who hear and are known of Christ and who follow him shall never perish. Only those who bear these distinctive marks can lay claim to eternal security and to double security and to eternal security. So if you are Christ sheep, and I pray that you are, and if you're not, it's about time you become one, right? Because in the next part, we have to ask this question. If you are God's sheep, where's the evidence? Can I see it in your life? Can another person see it in your life? Can you see it in your life? Where's the evidence? Nowadays, if someone applies for a passport, they require three to six points of identification. I mean, you have to have a birth certificate. Of course, if you're voting, you don't have to have anything. A driver's license, a marriage certificate, a military discharge papers, a current phone or a utility bill to prove you are who you say you are. So, see, the burden of proof is on you. See, God's saints are distinguished from all other people, not only by what they, not only by what he has done for them, but also by what he has worked in them. See, so part of the doctrine of perseverance is let me see the fruit. Let me see what's on the branches. Because if God has worked in you and he has changed you, there will be evidence on the branches. So God's saints are endowed with new life, with a spiritual, with a supernatural principle or nature which affects their whole end result, which affects their souls. Like, again, in Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. So this is an important shift of a stance, of a, a shift, a change in sphere, because the apostle there is a viewing people as either in Adam or in Christ. If you're in Adam, what does that mean? A believer moves from one place to another. In other words, all who are in Christ are new creations. All who are in Adam are still linked with the old things, the old things being the old Adamic nature with all its corruption and old habits and all its sinful outworkings, all its enslaving sins. But those who are now associated with Christ as Christ's sheep who are in Christ find themselves in a new position, in a new sphere, in a new place. Old things are discarded. Old things pass away. Old things do not become new at conversion. They are discarded, and other things take their place as newly created. There are, of course, still dangers from the flesh and the world and Satan. There always will be, but remember, Christ holds us. He protects us. He causes us to persevere. He preserves his saints. So what does the doctrine of the perseverance perseverance of the saints teach us if a man is totally depraved and cannot do anything to help himself spiritually and if God is absolutely sovereign in the matter of election choosing the elect on the basis of his will and his will alone and if 
Christ's death was for the elect, guaranteeing their salvation. And if God calls the elect irresistibly, then it follows that God will assure the final salvation of these elect. That is, they will persevere to the final end. They will make it. They will be with God in glory. There's no ifs, ands, or doubts about it. That will happen. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to have some going up points and coming down. It's, your life is going to be a little bit like a roller coaster. But there's going to be a point as you grow in Scripture and as you become stronger in the truth of God's Word, you're going to be able to balance out and level off and learn how to walk by faith and be strong in the Lord. And you're going to the old temptations that used to quickly pull you down are not even going to have much of a pull on you at all because you're going to say, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to serve Christ. I want to follow Christ. I want to listen to Christ. I want to be known by him. I want to see my fruit that he's working in me. I want to see it. And see, that's what's going to give us joy. God's not a killjoy. He's a, an ex, he's a magnif, magnifier of joy. You want to know real joy? Follow Christ. If you want to know false joy, follow sin. Follow the world. Follow Satan. He'll promise you all of it. They'll promise you all of it, and it'll be short-lived, and you'll suffer the consequences of the destruction of sin. Follow Christ, and you'll find real joy. You'll find real peace, and you'll fi find real security in Christ Jesus. So all these things wrapped up in this doctrine that is so comforting and so gives us such stability in the Christian life to walk with boldness and to walk praising God, thanking God for all that he's done. So at the profession level and then at the heart level, and then next week I'll pick it up at the living level, and we'll develop that a little bit more. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you this morning. I pray, Lord, that the word of God, again, would so deeply penetrate our hearts, so capture our attention, so arrest us in the place that we're at in our life right now, that, Lord, it will either cause us to ask the right questions about where do I stand before God? If I were to die today, where, I, where would I go? And, Lord, if that's, those questions have been answered adequately by Scripture, then that person would have become one of your sheep. They would have saving faith. They would listen to your words. They would follow you. Yes, Lord, imperfectly, but they would. That would be the direction of their life. So I pray, Lord, this morning, if someone doesn't know you, they would not put it off one second. Today would be the day of salvation. But if someone does know you, Lord, I pray that you would give them a resolve in their heart to be recognized as one of your sheep wherever they go. I pray that you would give him, them the, the foundation of the security they have in Christ, not only to save them, but to keep them right to the end. And I pray, Lord, as they as we all realize that more, that we would just rest in you and trust you more and live our life as a vessel in your hand that you would use to display your glory through these weak vessels. I pray that you would do that, Lord. Thank you for this time together. Bless your people for the sake of your great name. Amen. Let's stand together. <clears throat>